0: Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. Rats on a home invasion spree, elephants barreling through Indian villages, caterpillars munching through crops. Once upon a time, these offenders would have been put on trial and dealt with in a court of law, however, ineffectually. But today, conflict management between humans and the natural world is an entire industry that grows larger with every incursion we make into the wilderness. Famed science journalist Mary Roach returns to the podcast to talk about what it was like to be mugged by a macaque while working on her new book, Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. Thanks for talking to me, Mary.
1: Oh, my pleasure. I'm delighted to be here.
0: So where did the idea of investigating When Nature Breaks the Law, the subtitle of the book, come from? And like, what is the law
1: anyway? Well, the law meaning our laws. So in other words, it's, it's about animals committing manslaughter or home invasion, breaking and entering, trespassing, vandalizing. Obviously, the laws aren't written for them, but they do these things. And then we have to figure out how to deal with it. So, um, that, that's the law that I'm talking about, just regular human laws. And, uh, I got interested in it uh, kind of in a roundabout way. I had had a passing interest in, um, wildlife crime forensics, but, uh, not with the wildlife as the perpetrators, but with the wildlife as the victims. I, I was up at this lab, uh, up in Oregon where they, uh, investigate poaching and the u- illegal uses of animals for medicinal purposes. There was this woman who was the um, the authority on how to tell uh, counterfeit from real tiger penis, which is used as a sort of a medicinal, totally n- not effective, uh, except as a placebo um, virility booster. Anyway, uh, I, I that was what I was interested in, but I couldn't, I couldn't actually be on the scene and follow along any cases or or be with the investigators for legal reasons. So I set that aside, kind of turned it inside out and thought, well, what about when animals are the perpetrators?
0: I mean, it is a huge subject because nature is obviously everywhere. Humans are obviously everywhere. We actively live and encroach on these natural environments on every continent, how did you choose where to go, you know, which nature, which species to look at?
1: So I'm always, with my books, I'm always looking for a scene and a setting and things happening and people talking. And so I could kind of bring it to life a little bit for people. Uh, and that's you know, that's surprisingly difficult. Sometimes the timing is off or somebody just doesn't want me tagging. Who could not want me tagging along being a pest getting in the way? <laughs> uh but uh, so I really, I go where I can find the most interesting stories for people. It really wasn't like, these are the most important conflicts. So I'm going to cover these, you know, my priorities are probably all inside out. Because yeah, there's, you know, 2000 species, I'm sure on, you know, 100 plus countries uh, where these conflicts happen. And each one has its own challenges, its own potential solutions. And so um, kind of, I could have, gone anywhere. But uh, yeah, a lot of it is based in the US, but I was interested in India as well, because India has a unique relationship with animals, because some of their deities are represented by animals, you know, the monkey god, Ganesh elephant, I mean, almost all of the major nuisance species in India are also religious icons. So they have kind of a, you know, interesting attitude and approach. But most of it is uh, as domestic. New Mm -hmm. Zealand also, New Zealand. Oh, in the Vatican. (laughs) I guess I did. I guess I really did nothing here.
0: (laughs) No, I want to circle back to the Vatican later, because I think that part is very interesting. But I think it's important to start off with like the most familiar encounters to Americans or North Americans. And, you know, those I think are animal attacks on humans and then animal attacks on trash. And what I thought was super interesting about those two things and those two chapters in your book is that these they're often the same thing, you know?
1: Yes. Yeah. Well, you're mostly talking about bears here, I assume, mm-hmm. uh, although, you know, raccoons and other animals go after trash. But yes, bear attacks, they're quite rare. There's somewhere between one and three a year, historically, over the past dozen or so years in the United States, I'm talking about. But when when you look at what happens in a bear, I'm using quotes on attack, because it's often a defense, you know, as in, You've gotten too close. I have food that I'm protecting, or I have cubs that I'm protecting. You got too close, back off. But more more often than that, it's it's opportunistic. It's a bear smelling food and going after it, and the person kind of comes between the bear and the food. They're very, very rarely a, what you would call a predatory attack. They're usually going after food. And, yeah, it's often garbage. It's often, you know, the bears, especially before they're about to hibernate, they're looking for a big source of calories like a concentrated jackpot of calories and a bag of scraps from a restaurant is nirvana i mean they're that so that you know you can go into back alleys in aspen downtown aspen which i did at three in the morning and um not be guaranteed to see a bear but a pretty good likelihood i only tried it one night and there were two bears there so uh they're you know ripping into this big bag of garbage and and they're in downtown Aspen. So there's, you know, the people around that, the, you know, the, the bears and the people are kind of habituating to each other, stopping. They, they don't see each other as a threat anymore. Uh, so anytime you have people coming closer and closer to bears, you're raising the likelihood that there's going to be uh, an injury situation. So it's, it's really important to lock up the garbage. It's way more complicated. It sounds easy. Just lock your garbage. (laughs) How hard could that be? But as it turns out, um, a lot of times those bear resistant containers are not used properly or the staff forgets to lock it up. Sometimes it's like, you know, you got to do three different things to lock it or they throw it in the recycling bin which isn't bear resistant, or the or the trash companies don't want to pick up a certain kind of bear resistant container because they'd have to retrofit their trucks, and often there's not a lot of enforcement of this legislation. Like the, you are required to to use bear resistant containers, but there's and there's there's a fine, but people often don't get fined. Um, the, you know, and these the, the the staff that has to do this, patrolling the containers and writing the fines, they've they've got a lot of other things to do. So it's a challenging thing in bear country and, you know, a place like Aspen, uh, it's it's a ski resort town. So it's up in the mountains with uh, all the kinds of things that bears love to eat, you know, um, chokecherry and crabapple trees and things that have made it a, an appealing place for bears to live. And we've moved in to that terrain and provided other exciting food opportunities. So a lot of conflict in places like that.
0: Yeah. I mean, it seems like a lot of these examples our our fault anyway, you know, like all the conflicts seem to stem because someone left out their trash in a place where bears used to live or like loggers are encroaching on an elephant's forest. It's like we're the ones who weren't supposed to be there, but we're the ones like getting rid of the bear in question.
1: Yeah, sadly, that is um, that is often the case. Yeah. No matter where you go, uh, it's, you know, and, and, you know, it's hard to fault. You know, some of the, the people in these regions of India were on this sort of this elephant corridor, they call it. You know, they migrate through this region and, you know, there's such really uh, it's severely impoverished people trying to make a living out of the forest. You know, either grazing their animals there, cutting wood for fires and just trying to get by and live. And it's so it's tough to get them to feel like the welfare of elephants is a priority for them. You know, I, I understand that. But yes, it is it is almost always us coming closer to a habitat that was once the purview of wild animals and um, not always finding the best path to coexistence. What if we just
0: like accepted the risk of living alongside animals that some of us are going to die because we're on their turf? Is, is that a terrible question to ask?
1: Well, I, no, I thought <laughs> I thought about that in the book because I, I made the example of you know, we every now and then a plane crashes and we still take flights and we accept that risk. The difference sadly is that um, an airline company is collecting revenue from the passengers that can they can then use uh, in the case of a lawsuit. There's no such revenue from bears. So sadly, one of the things that uh, is a consideration for wildlife agencies is lawsuits. Like if somebody says, look, there's a bear that's been really aggressive, getting into trash and breaking into houses in this area. And if they say, well, and this has happened to the tune of a $4.5 million settlement, if they say, well, let's just monitor the situation for a while, and they monitor it, and then something does happen, and that bear mauls someone, they are then liable. They knew about it, and they didn't do anything about it. So like so many things in our Society, it, it comes down to liability and, and um, an agency or a company, whatever it is, not feeling comfortable with the financial risk.
0: So where does the money come from for these programs? I mean, bears aren't generating money, but the hunting industry does, you know, and hunting licenses fuel some of the, most of the, you know, coffers of these wildlife yes. agencies in the U.S. I mean, is yes. that true... Elsewhere, where, like where does the money come from to control like the macaque population or stray dog populations? Who does this stuff?
1: Uh, well, here, yes, wildlife management agencies, yes, are funded by hunting licenses and you know taxes on equipment, and so yeah, that, if that's your constituent base, it's a little yeah you know, it Do we do we trust them to really be focusing on these issues rather than the issues that are of importance to you know hunters and fisher people? I was going to say fishermen. You can't. Fisher people? Fishers. I don't know. People of fish. Um, and and uh, it's an issue in, in India, in Delhi, where there's a tremendous issue with urban macaques, which are quite aggressive in stealing things and sometimes jumping down onto someone's balcony to get access to their home. There's been a number of people f- who've fallen from balconies when a troop of macaques is going to dropped onto the, their balcony and tried to get into the home amazing how how many there are there and uh, how much mischief they get into and people uh, people are angry about that and they'd like them to be taken care of Um, but it's an interesting conundrum because the Delhi City Municipal Wildlife person doesn't he he feels like my you know my job is stray dogs Um, I don't do wild animals that's the forest agency meanwhile the forest agency says these animals are no longer wild. They're in the city, and they're in a human environment. This is your responsibility. So they're just dickering back and forth. <laughs> like, if you talk to one of them, they'll go, please contact Dr. Ishwar Singh of the Forest Agency. Here is his phone number. So I'm, um, you know, they're. Uh, uh, and and I, you can't blame them. It's an intractable problem. And you also have layered on top of that the fact that um, these animals are, are uh, people give offerings to them outside the Hanuman temples. You know, the monkey god. So the monkeys are rewarded and they're all around the temples if you go to any of the cities in northern India and people both revere them and want them to disappear. It's a it's a very uh vexing challenge for anybody who's um supposed to deal with it. Right, especially
0: if you layer like bureaucracy on top and arguments about definitions.
1: Yeah, exactly. And also and the solution right now, they have a large preserve. It's an, it used to be a mine and and it, it actually is a forested area. it's kind of nice i was there it's it's in southern delhi so the, they catch monkeys and put them there, but it's very hard to hire a monkey catcher mm. in Delhi because it's a job that feels wrong to be you know catching and 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 taking away messing with a with a monkey because of the religious association you know you're you're um it it's very it's it's a difficult hire. It also sounds
0: like herding cats, like something you would say is an example of something extremely difficult to do.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, they're pretty wily. Yeah. (laughs) Well, okay. so speaking
0: of definitions, earlier you said people want them taken care of or they want them to disappear. So that can mean like catching them and putting them on a reserve. Like what are the other approaches to like controlling ballooning populations of various
1: creatures? For the macaques, and for some animal populations here, there's been a lot of effort to come up with some kind of birth control. An oral birth control, something you would put in a bait, is problematic in that you, with a free-ranging population, how do you know if they're getting the right amount? And also, how do you keep other species from taking that bait, other species that you don't want to interfere with their uh, reproduction? Uh, so, so that's challenging. There are immunocontraceptive vaccines. But like most vaccines, they require a booster. So now, uh, somehow you need to find these animals that these are wild, free ranging animals and you've given them one shot. How do you know you'd have to mark them? So you know that they've had the first shot. And how do you find? <laughs> how do you find? You can't just give them an appointment card, you know, like for the COVID vaccine, you know, come back in five weeks or whatever it is. You can't, they're like, they're off, you know, how do you, how do you get them? How do you get them back? So that tends to be used on, Um, On, say, an island like Assateague, the horses of Assateague, there's been a a program there. Uh, Some of the wild horse populations that can be kind of rounded up, you know, and that makes it easier, you know, to give all of the animals a shot at the same time and then round them up again for a booster. The hope is that there will be a one-shot immunocontraceptive vaccine, and that is something that the National Wildlife Research Center has been working on. So, the other Thing with that, you know, I talked to the research director at the Wildlife Institute of India, and he said, you're not solving the problem in that these animals will live out their life. So you've got another, you know, a macaque lives in, in this in this urban environment. I think it was 15 years it may live. And so it, it's going to be a while for the population goes down to the point where people feel like the problem has been addressed. And they're going to be like, you spent all this money. <laughs> We sell macaques everywhere. So, you know, so it's, um, it's a bit of, you, you need, people need to be patient. It's really tough to figure out the best approach to these things.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's also tough to, I don't know, figure out what the borders of the problem are. You know, like, how does an animal become a nuisance species? How do we decide what a pest is?
1: Yeah, I don't like the term pest. I mean, it puts the animal in the context of human society. uh, And it makes it seem as though this animal is willfully pestering us when it's just, it's looking for food or a place to raise its young uh, or a place to get warm. uh, And we've provided some appealing options. So what do we do even, and and some animals uh, are so branded with that concept, like rodents in particular, like roof rats here in, in Northern California, they they tend to be and they they're not this isn't like a sewer rat. Um this is this is a smaller it's actually very cute. And they they're up in the trees a lot. They they do sometimes get into roofs and that's when people get upset. I mean, I'm speaking from experience. I saw one run <laughs> across the deck while I was working on this book, and I was like, Holy crap, that's a rat! There's a rat in the middle of the day, and that freaked me out because they're nocturnal. They're like, What does the whoa, there's a lot of rat. You know, once you see Nocturnal animals during the day. That means there's a lot of rats, and you know there was a sort of a spike in the population at that time. And my immediate reaction was, "We've got to get a snap trap. It's a rat." And then I thought, "I thought, well, all right, it's not in the house. It's not doing anything except hanging out like the squirrels. In fact, if you took away the tail, it looks exactly like a squirrel. Why am I reacting this way? It's just there's a, you know, some animals." Um, we just see them through that lens as a, as a as a pest and something immediately to be exterminated. You call someone and you don't really think about what that person's going to do, how they're going to deal with the issue. And, and it's rare that they're going to do something truly humane. I mean, there are now humane wildlife control operators who do uh, make that effort. For example, they'll put in a you know, if there's a squirrel or a, an animal getting into your attic, they'll they'll find the opening and they'll put a one-way door so the animal can go out and the animal's babies. Because sometimes what happens is the animal gets out, you plug the hole, and now the animal can't get back to its babies and they die. And that happened with a squirrel here. And it's so sad because that that mama squirrel like keeps coming back to the, you know, my husband put a little wire thing over the hole there And for years, we were like, why does that squirrel keep coming back? And this man from the Humane Society of the United States says, oh, that's because when your husband put up that grate during the day, the squirrel was out foraging, but the babies were still in your attic. So um, that's why that squirrel comes back all the time. She's like, my babies are in there. (laughs) Of course, by now they're shriveled baby corpses that we... I, I wasn't thinking about that, you know.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting that like, you know, a a rat has sort of like the mark of the beast, you know, like that is a pest and it, you know, has plague and it's bad and I think too far away to be rehabilitated, you know, for better or for worse. But then there are animals like, you know, when you visited the Vatican, you wrote about how like there are parrots everywhere. Parrots are not native to the Vatican. You know, you see parrots everywhere in Amsterdam, too, in the parks because they were released.
1: San Francisco, too.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And they're, why
1: are they not pests? You know, <laughs> who, who yeah. decides and where are the boundaries? It gets decided when they start nesting in your attic eaves or, you know, when they, in, when they start setting up housekeeping on your property. That's when people get I and mean, the parrots are pretty much out in the trees. I think I think that's where, you know, that's kind of where we start to call them pests or or, you know, and often it is they are agricultural pests. So they're they're animals that are taking a percentage of a crop. You know, blackbirds is an example of that or or rodents too. rodents digging around in agricultural fields and huge numbers are killed. Uh, uh, and that's a, that's a tough one. I mean, if it's your livelihood, obviously, you're pissed off that, you know, say two percent of the crop of Sunflower seeds is going to blackbirds. Um, but uh, it's a tough one to solve, particularly with a, with a huge population like migrating blackbirds or grackles or cowbirds. The millions of these birds flying back and forth over the area where sunflower seed is grown. They, they try and keep birds from bird seed.
0: Good luck. <laughs> Good luck. I feel like with birds, it's more interesting to learn about how we've failed to keep them away.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's a it's a losing battle literally in the case of the albatross on Midway Island but or the emus in Western Australia.
0: On a large scale it seems like so many of the conflicts that you write about are kind of intractable or like failures in the case of the albatross or other birds. Were there any, you know, ones that seemed really promising or that were like super successful that you were kind of like surprised to find?
1: um sadly nothing is jumping to mind (laughs) um well you know it's the other thing going on at least in this country is that species like um, bears and cougars and wolverines and wolves and um these are animals that up until the middle of the 1900s were they had bounties on them they were uh pretty much not wiped out obviously but Large percentage of the population exterminated. They were considered either a commodity if they were fur bearers, or they were considered varmints. They were a threat to ranchers' livestock or to you know farmers' produce. People killed them with a pretty clear conscience, and the government helped. So now that these populations, you know, with the dawn of environmentalism and animal welfare concerns, these animals' populations are are coming back, and that's great. But of course, they're going to reach a point where they've come back far enough that they're now getting up into our business and people start to get annoyed with them and want them called in many cases that makes it that makes it very difficult at what point are there too many people love bears until there's a bear in their kitchen you know <laughs>
0: We have links in the show notes to Mary Roach's new book, Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law, as well as our first episode with Mary Roach, which is also my first interview ever for the podcast. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp.